Welcome to the Energy Capital. I'm your host, Doug Lewin. For this first episode of the Energy Capital podcast, I wanted to have former Commissioner Will McAdams of the Public Utility Commission of Texas. When we recorded on January 9th, he had only left the commission a few weeks before, and we were just days away from another Arctic blast, the third one in four years, descending on Texas. That was fitting, as Commissioner McAdams was the first appointee to the Public Utility Commission after all three commissioners resigned following Winter Storm Uri. He recounted the chaos of those early days. We also talked about what he was proud to have accomplished, including winterization of power plants and establishing a virtual power plant pilot. We also talked about what he wishes he could have achieved if given more time. Mostly though, Will is an incredibly thoughtful and insightful energy expert. He listens, he reads, he thinks deeply. And Texans were lucky to have him at the PUC these last three years. You'll hear him doing some reflection on his own responsibility for Yuri, something extremely rare among public servants, the industry, or really anybody. I think what I most enjoyed about this interview is what George H.W. Bush called, quote, the vision thing. Too often policymakers and regulators lack vision. They're putting out fires and don't have time for anything else. Not Will. He's got a vision of the future of the grid, which is, as William Gibson famously said, here now, it's just not evenly distributed. Texas has more of the future here now than just about anywhere in the world. More wind, more solar, more batteries, more extreme weather, more industrial electrification, which we talked about in this podcast, and with each passing day, more distributed energy resources, small sources in customers' homes and buildings. Will McAdams did a great job in this podcast of painting a picture of where all this is headed. I hope you'll enjoy listening to Will as much as I did. This episode is free. About half of the future episodes will be for paid subscribers only, so please be sure to subscribe at the Texas Energy and Power newsletter at DougLewin.com. Here's my discussion with Will McAdams, former commissioner of the PUC of Texas. Will McAdams, welcome to Energy Capital. Hey, thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. So excited to talk to you. Obviously, a whole lot to talk about, but let's just start with your background. What was what was your path to being a public utility commissioner? Yeah, no. Um, so I landed in Austin around 2009. Uh, I, I was fresh out of the uh, U.S. Army, um, and uh, I went to work as a sort of jack-of-all-trades, legislative aide, uh, staffer, policy analyst to a state senator, and that senator happened to be Troy Frazier. And Troy Frazier was a uh, pallet manufacturer from West Texas who was a long-serving uh, legislator. And as a part of being a manufacturer, his number one cost of doing business was electricity. And so he always had a passion for energy, electricity, uh, industrial policy. And um, it was actually one of the co-authors of SB7. And... Um, so his policy focus was always in that area. Over uh, two years of working for Frazier, he began to shift me into that policy area as his uh, aid analyst um, designated to focus on energy, especially the Public Utility Commission. He eventually regained uh, the chairmanship of the Committee of Jurisdiction over uh, the Public Utility Commission and ERCOT, oversight of ERCOT. Uh, I was his legislative director and kind of his point uh, staff person on grid related issues. 
And I held that spot for both Frazier and several other members of the legislature for the next, oh, uh, eight years. And so I worked for Frazier. I worked for Charles Schwartner, who authored Senate Bill 3 uh, during the 2021 session. I also was uh, the director for uh, Senate uh, Business and Commerce, the Senate Committee on Business and Commerce, under Kelly Hancock, who authored Senate Bill 2 um, in 2021. So I had a, a strange nexus uh, in terms of the issues. Um, I also worked for Speaker Dennis Bonin uh, for a, a period where I was his advisor on regulated industries, uh, for business and in regulated industries. And um, and then energy had burned me out in uh, 2019, and I decided to uh, step away and became president of a statewide trade association, Associated Builders and Contractors of Texas, and happily focused on employment and construction-related policy for uh, a year and a half. And, um, and then Winter Storm Uri happened in 2021, and um, I got a call. Uh, and that was after the uh, recording of Arthur, uh, Arthur, Arthur DeAndrea uh, broke, um, and the, the final resignation was announced at the PUC and, um, and the rest is history. I onboarded shortly thereafter. So you were, um, appointed on April 1st. Uh, there's a lot of jokes that could be told there. Um, but, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure at many points you felt like, that you know, what what am I doing here? What have I what have I taken on? What have I walked walked into? Uh, right? I mean, it was a extraordinary set of circumstances where I'm not sure it has. I'm pretty sure it doesn't have any precedent um, that all three commissioners were gone. There were no commissioners for for a period of some weeks. You're appointed on April first. Can you talk a little bit about what those days and weeks and, and, and even the first couple of months were like? Uh, you know, clearly the dust had not settled from Winter Storm Uri. People were still processing it. There's all sorts of what's going to happen next. What It must have been some form of chaos. What was that like? Yeah, it was not an orderly transition of, of authority and responsibility. I'll say that. Um, but we, we made the best of it. Um, as you recall, the legislature was in session. Uh, I was over at the Capitol a lot doing my job as president of ABC. Uh, and I remember sitting down in a, a legislative office watching the, the marathon hearings, um, just on the, the telecast and, um, they, uh, watching the, the Q and A between the senators, the house members and the, the commissioners at the time. I was, it was painful, uh, to watch. And I, and I, I was, it was, t it was tough to watch. And people would ask me what's wrong. And I'm like, look, I feel partially responsible for this. I mean, I had a hand in, in crafting policy over the last, you know, eight years, decade, uh, and th this, this collapse of the system was, uh, it was personal. Uh, to me, uh, and and it was personal in trying to stabilize the system and recover, rebuild. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And when I got that call, I was like, "Yes, absolutely, let's do this. Let's uh, let's help." And um, and so my history in the state senate was very important in terms of that first nomination. 
any of the commissioners who were going to be on board at that time had to undergo Senate confirmation. And uh, if the public was questioning the competence of the commission, the state Senate certainly was. Um, and you could even multiply the intensity of that skepticism on the part of the Senate. And so, uh, you know, I had spent 10 years in the state Senate um, by the time I had left. And uh, I knew all the senior senators. Um, I knew all the senior staff. The lieutenant governor and I had met before. I'm, I'm sure he kind of put the face with the name when we had our first meeting, which was an hour and a half meeting uh, before my name was even put forward on a appointment list. And, uh, and that was a tense meeting. I, I will tell you, I've never been in a, a more uh, high magnitude interview than with that meeting because he wanted to know somebody was going to come in here and do their duty. And, um, and so I passed muster. He said, I believe you'll do your best and I'm going to support you. Walk back. Uh, everybody was relieved to hear that. The governor's office was relieved to hear that. And, uh, and then they put my name out uh, within 24 hours. And, um, and then I began to lead the way. Uh, again, I wasn't going to be the chair. Um, Peter Lake followed two weeks later. Uh, but I was going to onboard first, assess the situation, and then uh, get confirmed, ultimately, which the Senate did in short order, and start to rebuild at PUC. Uh, I remember walking over to the PUC uh, two days before the vote. And I, actually, no, I didn't walk over. It was, it was the day after the vote. And uh, th where I was confirmed and I said, look, uh, I'm going to onboard. And I met with Arthur and the place was dark. All the cubicles were empty because they were still on COVID staffing. Uh, only the senior staff was present. It looked like an empty ship, um, just cold, dark and quiet. And uh, met with Arthur and you, you could imagine a man under tremendous strain. And he was, um, but he also looked like, a weight was being lifted. Um, it was, it was a tough time for them, but, you know, just assess the situation, got with Peter, and then we started putting things back together again. So you said it, it was personal and, and you felt some responsibility, you know, it, it's interesting because I, and I want your perspective on this too. How much of Yuri do you think was, and, and I understand that sentiment because that's, your, your character as a human being and your army background and, and probably the way you were raised and all that. And that's, that's, that's admirable. And I appreciate that sentiment. That's the way I think we want public servants to think that, that, you know, um, I have some responsibility here and all that, that having been right. said, I still don't view Yuri as a quote unquote market failure. It it may be. I, I, I want to know your view on this, though. For, forget mine for a minute. What you know, there, you had other failures as well, right? Of of gas supply, of um, you know, forecasting of load going as high as it was. So energy efficiency comes into this. Um, yeah. And then and then there, the market maybe is a piece of that. What is your sort of diagnosis of Yuri and where the sort of what what were the major problems and how does the market structure fit into that puzzle? 
Yeah, no, it was a confluence of events. It was not a market failure. Uh, I, I can say that emphatically, uh, clearly now. Um, what happened in 2020, and I, I started alluding to this from my statements from the dais shortly after we had the, the new commission composed. Uh, I, I said, look, this was a confluence of events. Um, it certainly appears that way. The last two years and eight months have only affirmed that in my mind. Um, and you got to remember what was happening at the time. The economy was coming back to life after Yuri. And so what had been happening over that year and a half um, between COVID forcing the dormancy of the economy, uh, load had stayed steady state. There was no load growth over that year period. Um, by 2021, everything was reopening again. All the industrial processes were reopening again. And what had happened between 2020 and 2021 and what had been building before that was a crash course industrialization, electrification movement, and especially in Texas, because we are the we are one of the manufacturing engines of the country. And so what we didn't realize is how much gas-driven industrial processes over that two-year period were being converted to electrified systems. So they were, instead of burning uh, gas-fed boilers or uh, internal gas-fed systems, they were switching that over to a plug-and-play system where they could account for the carbon emissions that they were uh, producing, where they could account for the energy costs uh, associated with that, where it wasn't necessarily directly tied to the volatile natural gas uh, system. And what we saw was a dramatic increase in load growth at the same time uh, as this winter storm was bearing down on Texas. Um, and that was a snapshot in time, but, but it hit us at a point where the PUC and ERCOT were not tracking the criticality of the electrons being diverted to those loads. And, um, and as a result, key systems failed. And that became a cascade of failures that rippled its way through the entire system. That's when curtailments occurred. That's when, uh, and, and this followed wind generation freezing in place because of the magnitude and the moisture associated with that winter event. So it became this pancaking cascade of failures uh, that took the system down and took it down uh, for several days. So that's what I would say. So let's um, let's pivot a little bit. Um, and and although it's it's related to the last question, so you you were there for for nearly three years. Obviously, when when we're talking, you've you've left the commission. What are you most proud of when you look back at, at, at your tenure there? And, and what do you wish you had had more time to focus on? What, what you know, yeah, I'll just put it that way. Yeah, well, um, I was most proud of, we, we held our ground on weatherization. Um, what, so we, we, and I would like to advertise this for the public. We have a, a winter event that appears to be headed our way this coming week, um, this coming weekend, and uh, preparations are underway. I'm fully confident that everybody's taking necessary steps to make sure that they're winterized and weatherized. I urge the public to do the same. Um, however, at the time, we were, try we were in this 
uh, paradigm shift discussion about who bears the cost of these efforts. And at the time, we, we dug our heels in and said, no, statute has given us direction. These costs will be borne by the resources that support the system. This is a part of their cost of doing business, um, just like any business has a, a natural regulatory cost of doing business. And, um, and we will establish a standard that will be very stringent that they will be a held account to. Uh, I had a part in establishing that stringent standard. Um, I had a part in holding the line on ensuring that wind chill was accounted for. And I think we're going to find out how uh, important that is this coming weekend because it's going to be windy and it's going to be cold. And, um, and the temperatures will be extremely low as a result. And they will feel extremely low. And so metal is going to perform in a certain way under those conditions. And we need to make sure that that holds up. So we impose the weatherization standards that are absolutely the most conservative, quote unquote conservative, but stringent in the country. Uh, NERC is looking at those standards as an example. I believe it'll play, um, play an important role in informing what their ultimate standards are for the nation. Uh, so Texas will have led the way. And then the, the second thing I'm most proud of is we stood up the aggregated distributed energy uh, resource pilot program uh, in a five-month period, uh, launched it to where it was live uh, within nine months. And at the year anniversary, we had the first electrons being dispatched into the system as a result, allowing uh, everyday consumers to become a resource, a virtual power plant system to support system reliability. And I think one day we will be able to account on the, uh, account for them in resiliency plans for the system. So I, I think we, uh, we started building a road to the future and I was a part of that and I'm extremely proud of it. And, and what do you think is sort of left undone? What do you wish there had been more, more time to, to focus on? I was so focused on just the day-to-day -day triaging of ERCOT at, at the time of this transition and Southwest Power Pool, uh, working on that. Um, I wish we could have addressed cost allocation in terms of distribution infrastructure costs. And I believe that is one of the, the most profound things that the commission can take up over the next three to five years to, or, the, or frankly, the legislature. I believe this issue is ripe for the legislature to begin arguing that will determine who pays for distribution costs. Because I believe uh, what's coming is the distribution system is going to be upgraded in a dramatic way over the next 40 years. And um, the resources that we can begin aggregating and bringing in and dispatching into the system, not from the transmission system, but from the distribution system, will help support our grid from now, for 100 years from now. And if uh, under the current policy, if those costs are completely borne by the consumers at distribution, that's your mom and pop businesses. That's your small to mid-level commercial consumers. That's your, your low-income residential consumers. They're paying the cost of that, and it could be a crushing cost. So, so I think ultimately the commission needs to, and this is what I had launched but didn't have the time to finish, 
needs to have the discussion and ultimately decide that those costs need to be borne by the system as a whole, because ultimately that will help spread the cost across a greater pool of consumers to include our large uh, industrial consumers, because ultimately all of them will benefit equally from the reliability and the increase in resources participating in the energy market, which will ultimately bring down wholesale energy costs and help support system reliability and resiliency while decreasing uh, price volatility in the system, which eventually costs consumers. Uh, so I, I I understand generally what you're saying, but I'm not sure I follow specifically on the on the distribution infrastructure costs. You're saying it should be spread across. Is it is it not currently done that way? No. Okay. So tell me more. No. No. It's so if you're a consumer, say in Houston, uh, the costs for the distribution system are borne by those consumers in the Centerpoint Energy Service Territory. And so that's just basically Houston people paying for Houston wooden poles that are outside of their homes. But in an environment of huge electric load growth, the distribution system can do a lot more and become a lot more sophisticated to where it can handle two-way traffic of power, uh, not just uh, along radial systems. Um, instead of just receiving power from the transmission grid to their home. And in so doing, you can start hooking up cars. You can start electrifying all this stuff that we're installing in our homes or putting on our businesses. It allows that neighborhood to be a lot more sophisticated and a lot more resilient than it currently is. But it requires a lot of upgrading. And we don't know the magnitude of the upgrade to the distribution system or the magnitude of the costs associated with that. We, we don't know the magnitude. But once that we happens... But we know it's going to be big, right? Because like you were talking, big. yeah, this, this crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crash course you were talking about in industrialization and electrification prior to URI is like a fraction of what we're about to see over the next it's, 10, 20 years. It's the tip of the iceberg. And I'm telling you, the iceberg's big. Yeah. And and so if if you can socialize that beyond the distribution system to the transmission system, then that means all of the industrials who currently do not pay distribution system costs would bear a portion of the burden because, again, they're consuming large amounts of electricity. And they would be able to socialize those costs over a greater um, pool of, of payers and support the system which they're benefiting from. The industrial consumers pay transmission based on their for a coincident peak, but they don't pay for distribution at all? They, they, because they're not interconnected at the distribution level. Because they're, okay. They wow. bypass that by building their own substations and interconnecting right there at transmission. So does this, uh, so that's obviously a huge issue, the, the, the who pays. I also wonder if, a, if sort of a first step to that, is it something like distribution resource planning, which... We don't really do in any kind of a transparent way right now. Obviously, the utilities do their own exactly. distribution resource planning, but having some kind of a market signal to solar and storage and energy efficiency, all kind, forget the technology, it could be all kinds of different technologies like, hey, there is a need over here. We think we need to invest tens of millions of dollars in distribution infrastructure. Is there a solution that can be met for millions of dollars instead of tens of millions but there's no market like that right now. There's no 
market signal. Is that correct? That's right. The VPP was the first market signal that was introduced really at that small of a scale at distribution. Um, and, and there's starting to be market signals uh, on that part, Doug, because, and this is for the more sophisticated listeners, because congestion costs at the transmission system, on the transmission system, are growing leaps and bounds. So people are, are starting to, to feel on a nodal basis. Okay, so the nodal system are a series of price points that are based around your, your, uh, your closest substation, you know, in your neighborhood. And the reason they do that is because that helps the system signal where scarcity is occurring. And at the transmission system, think of it just like uh, traffic congestion. There's too many people or too many electrons trying to get on the system at one place. Congestion builds up. Uh, it backs up uh, power beyond that point and starts backing down uh, power resources, whereas scarcity is experienced on the other side because it's it's free highway and people are calling for more cars to be on the road, but they can't get through because of the bottleneck. So it, it creates uh, a price formation problem on the system. Well, uh, that sends a signal that there needs to be more resources closest closer to the loads. And that's what these smaller resources can provide. They can start to spread out um, the cars coming onto the system. And as such, we don't have as many bottlenecks and the costs start to decline. Yep. Does if that this, makes sense. It does make sense. Does this inevitably lead to some kind of a distribution system operator model or DSO? This is talked about a lot at conferences yeah. and in white papers. And for those, we always want to make this podcast both accessible to a general audience and interesting to a, to an in-the-weeds uh, audience, but a distribution system operator would basically be somebody who's coordinating all of those small sources. If you start to think of all the batteries in the vehicles that are starting to come, quarter a million, uh, quarter million electric vehicles on the roads of Texas already today, probably pretty quickly heading right. towards a half a million and then a million after that. And each of them have pretty good sized batteries inside them. If nobody's coordinating all of that and they all plug in at six o'clock when people get home from work on a summer day as the sun is starting to set, we're going to have major problems. The inverse is true. If they're all being coordinated and orchestrated in such a way that their power, at least we're not charging them and potentially even reversing flow to the home so that it's consuming less from the grid, we could alleviate a lot of the problems we have. But doesn't some entity need to coordinate all of that and, and who, who could that be? Well, so, so we, we had talked about that. I had talked about that with ERCOT system planners and they said, well, look, we believe ultimately something like that is needed. We don't want to do it. And I'm like, understandable. Um, but we need to start talking about that. But in terms of the diff distribution system build out, Doug, this is a 40 year play. This is the future. Um, and that's why the conversation has started now. Uh, it's going to be an evolving conversation because there's going to be some entities, namely um, uh, the IOU TDUs, so like Centerpoint Energies and Encores of the World, the electric cooperatives, so South Texas Electric Cooperative or Perdinalis Electric Cooperative, um, the municipal systems, 
CPS, Austin Energy, who will need to consider seeding uh, some of their current authority in terms of coordinating their distribution system to that operator, to that new system operator, distribution system operator, just like they have done or federal policy has required them to do toward ERCOT in terms of management of the bulk power system. So that's going to be an evolving conversation on how that that could uh, unfold. Could the utilities themselves, the Austin Energy Center points, the co-ops, play that DSO role, or do you think it needs to be something independent, or have you not thought about it enough to, to say yet? No, I've, I've thought about it because <laughs> I, look, I figured. One of the big things that I believe is underway, and this is this is frankly counter to broad-based federal policy, I think, right now, is I think we're on a, a long march around, for the, for the last hundred years, the grid has been on a long mar- march toward better, uh, more broad-based integration as a system, okay? As for ERCOT, that's been as an islanded system within the national grids. For the other grids like SBP, PJM, uh, CERT, it's been integration with each other, you know, to make them more, uh, be able to lean on each other. I believe right now with the type of load growth that we're seeing, okay, that everybody's going to start to default back to a more islanded approach just to sort of stabilize the system and manage their systems and then begin another phase toward more integration. You know, it, it starts and stops. But as a result, those those uh, regional entities, the center points of the world or um, the encores of the world will begin coordinating uh, possibly with their neighboring cooperatives to better manage regionally the distribution system and what that could dispatch onto the bulk power system ultimately to move around the state. And, and I think that's not a bridge too far. I believe ultimately the market will signal that that is needed, but it, it's not ripe yet. That's fascinating. So this is actually a good, I want to, I want to make sure we um, take just a, a little step back and focus on the specifics of the VPP pilot and what the aggregated distributed energy resource task force that is a mouthful, but there is this task force. They continue to meet in, in, in Texas and will continue going forward. Um, it was just announced, uh, I believe, just last month uh, in December of 2023 that uh, the aggregated distributed energy resources would be allowed to participate in this new ancillary service, the ERCOT Contingency Reserve Service. So it's kind of growing yes. in the ways that it can actually serve the state, serve the grid, um, serve Texans. And, and that pilot is very related to everything you're just talking about at a high level, but let's, let's bring it into the specifics. Can you just describe the pilot, w- what it's about, what barriers it's trying to overcome, sort of, you know, what it is, what it's ex- achieved so far and, and, and where it's headed? I think we've already covered why it matters. I was going to ask you why it matters. I think we've already covered that. You could say more about that, but where is, what does it do? Where is it at now? And where is it, where is it heading? Okay. Well, high level, the the reason I push so hard for this is because again, my mission was to stabilize the system, and uh, and and I had to do that in an environment where I was stabilizing, trying to stabilize the system in a with a moving target, meaning the demand kept on going up. 
at the same time, I was trying to find resources to satisfy the demand, supply, find the supply. And there was no supply getting built. Everybody had had was petrified of the volatility and, and the unknowns about the market and the market design. And a lot of that was PUC uh, introduced. And we tried to sort that out over time. The bottom line is, I knew that the public's confidence had been shaken in the grid and the reaction that I would have or anybody would have is like, I'm going to start to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of number one first, and then I'll worry about number two, which is the system. And people were investing uh, under those under that motivation. And they were buying Generac generators. They were buying uh, PVs or they had uh, solar panels on their roofs already. They were like, at that point, all right, I'm going to pop for the battery and pair that up with the battery and I'm going to make it through the next winter storm or hurricane or whatever's going to come along. And so I knew that that number, uh, the number of those type of resources was growing out there. And I, I wanted to figure out a way, all right, how does our market begin to co-optimize that pool of resources within the system? And so that was the ADER pilot. That was the driving force behind allowing virtual power plants or communities with aggregated uh, resources to use technology that they had available to bid into the ERCOT uh, energy markets, namely ancillary markets, which for you laymen out there, that's like our emergency service markets. So the backup power of the system and sell that into the system at peak need, you know, when need determined that uh, that's that energy would be most valuable. And that's what this system does. It specifically targets not the big batteries or anything like that, but I'm talking about everything below one megawatt. And to put it in perspective, one megawatt is a Walmart um, or it's a neighborhood of three to 600 homes um, or it's a water treatment plant uh, with a neighborhood around it. Um, it's all kinds of stuff like that that is as close as you can get to the ultimate end-use consumer, and that's us. And so we did that. We set up the system. We created the market uh, within a market, and now they are selling in to the emergency services, and people are making money. And now other people are thinking about, okay, maybe this isn't a $70,000 out-of-pocket cost. Maybe I can build this or put it on my home, and I can have it paid for in a certain amount of time under this market structure. Now, ECRS, you talk about ECRS, that is the most flexible emergency service that we have in the system, okay? That was our newly created stealth fighter, if you will, of an emergency service. Um, that's the latest and greatest thing we have to deal with a system that is more variable in nature, meaning we have to manage a system that has more variable uh, resources like wind and solar, but also uh, higher load growth. And with the loads, meaning the consumers are doing more things uh, that changes their patterns over time. So ECRS is designed to be there no matter what. And uh, now that ECRS is open to the virtual power plants, they are perfect to meet that need because they can dispatch almost instantaneously. They are extremely flexible in an environment where flexibility is the watchword of the day and the thing that should be most valued. And uh, ultimately, when we have a winter storm come through, these guys are going to be a valuable component in uh, shoring up the system in the face of it.
Yeah, totally agree. So very related to that, and and I'm interested in in you know what you think the potential of demand response. Is. So so demand response can be storage, of course, but let's also talk about storage is injecting power into the grid. What about actually right. removing the the demand? So I think, as in my understanding, will at this point in the pilot. There isn't any reductions. There's no like aggregation of thermostats or electric hot water heaters. Is that correct? Or so, so it, it is because we were f- uh, first and foremost focused on because we hadn't done this before, Doug, in terms right. of injecting power into yeah. the system. Yeah. So we had to learn because again, the the whole point of the pilot and the reason we have it as a pilot is it's a sandbox for experimentation. But we wanted to see what the injection and dispatch look like. But the pilot is is an insert within uh, a rarely uh, used and not well-known program, which is the Aggregated Load Response Program inside of ERCOT. And so the ALR program can already um, pay loads to turn themselves off and, and all kinds of loads like aggregations of small loads can start to reduce their demand uh, at key times. And so when the pilot continues to move forward, we can, we can start to co-optimize both the dispatch of the resources in the pilot and also to incentivize and send the market signal that the aggregations of these smaller demand response pools can be valued and compensated. So I think that that is in the future phase of the pilot to send a, a more targeted market signal for the uh, for the bundled demand response to be paid. No, that makes a lot of sense. So the learnings that happen within this VPP pilot can help to kind of extend that ALR, which which to my understanding is mostly used for the bigger stuff now, Bitcoin mines and steel mills and stuff like that. But there's nothing, there's, I was going to say there's nothing stopping the smaller ones from getting in. What is stopping it is lack of market signal, lack of experience. And the, and the VPP pilot is bringing those things forward so that the ALR can be sort of expanded to include more of these smaller resources. Well, and and I'll tell you what this pilot does, Doug, is it sends a, a, a value signal to create a business case for the retail electric providers to actually develop the technologies need needed to telemetrically control and both the dispatch of resources into the system and the demand response needed to turn consumption down into the system. And once that is certified by ERCOT, then they can back bundle the demand response together and actually provide a value stream to the end-use consumer. To date, we have not had that. With the pilot, we now have that signal. So I want to put a finer point on this just to make sure, because this can get a little bit esoteric to those that maybe aren't involved in this, or even even those that are involved in the market, but maybe don't work on these kinds of issues as, as much. What we're talking about here is customers getting paid if they volunteer, if they want to, Right, if they come forward and say, "I want solar and storage," or "I would like to participate in a program where my electric hot water heater, my pool pump, my refrigerator, my thermostat is is reduced at certain times," I can actually get paid for that if I choose. So there's the 
affordability piece here, bringing down the cost yeah. of energy, bringing down the cost of new technologies. And there's the reliability piece, right? Which is if I'm somebody, I'm a Texan who says, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to deal with solar panels on my roof. I don't want anybody ever touching my thermostat. That's fine. Right. If your neighbor or somebody down the street does, your affordability gets better because the overall system cost is going down because we have more resources, more competition, and the reliability of the system is 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 going up as well. I was struck by an exchange you had with with Rody, Woody Rickerson, the the COO of ERCOT. This is September fourteenth. It was just after we had been through eleven conservation calls over the summer. Just eight days after there there was an emergency alert, and we were very close to having rolling outages. Yeah, yeah on, on September sixth, and you asked him. You said is this the future, meaning all these conservation calls and the emergency? And he said, yes. And I thought that was particularly striking because I think it's a possible future. Yes, we could have every summer where we have a bunch of conservation calls and emergencies. There is another future that's possible, which is a whole lot of people have devices. They're being orchestrated in a, in a coherent way. People are being paid and they're getting the bill credits, but they aren't hearing conservation alerts and emergency alerts. Am I being too overly optimistic or is that a possible future? No, um, but, but I got to tell you, I'm a, so one thing the army taught me to do is be a natural pessimist. Um, and so to plan for the worst possible contingencies and, um, do you want me to scare you a little bit? Uh, please. So in my last, last, uh, briefing with the speaker of the house, before I left the state government, I said, uh, I'm getting out of energy. I want to go to construction. I'm sick of it. Um, it's too bare knuckle of an ind industry. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, where's all this headed, Will? And, he, and I said, look, this is going to get sorted out, uh, this, this energy um, trajectory that we're on. But what's going to sort it out is pure, unmitigated volatility. And, and that's because I, we, we knew that the economy was taking off. We knew that load growth was there. We didn't know to what degree, and we still don't, because every system in the country is trying to figure that out. Um, we knew that the resource mix was becoming more variable, but it was also bringing down costs, as you have pointed out, 90% of the time. It's just that that 10% really gets you because it, it comes at unpredictable moments. Uh, but ultimately, where I was going with the statement, and I said, ultimately, cost volatility will drive consumers and the market to answer this question. And they will begin to actively engage in the market to provide solutions that will bring down these costs over the, the mid and long term. And, it, and we will have a more reliable and more resilient system as a result of it. Um, but nobody's going to get off their, their hind end and go and invest in that on a hypothetical. Frankly, they're going to have to see it. And I, and I think we're seeing that now. Um, and ERCOT is not the only system. I work with other systems and they uh, and, and will continue to do so. And they are experiencing the same thing. We are just on the leading edge. And I will say it's because our load growth is that much more than theirs is right now but they see the beginnings of their load growth beginning to take off and it's taking off during the winter season for which no system in the country is designed for, including the Northern systems. And, uh, and that's changing the, the planning calculations on the part of the grid administrators. 
So, so your contention is that there's going to be a lot of volatility going forward and it's the demand. Uh, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth there and the demand side resources that customers are bringing to the table themselves are going to be a major is the near term answer near term. What's, wh is there a longer term or, or you're just not sure what the longer term and, is? And, and that's where the pilot comes in. It's that more aggregated dispatch of power Okay. Because again, the sun's going to set unequally over time because again, it's setting over the arc. Uh, those electric vehicles will begin their charging patterns at different times because of the setting of the sun or when they're getting off work because of time zones. Any number of permutations will change the load profile on a regional basis. And therefore, the closer to the loads that you have enough disparate resources dispatching, will satisfy their needs. It'll be a more co-optimized system. And I know I'm using a lot of big words that are common speak in, in our world, but bottom line is the grid will manage itself better because we'll have more options and the market will provide those options. Yeah. If, if there's, if there's a market, well, which we'll get to in a minute, um, or what, what that market looks like and what that market structure is and if it's properly incentivized sure. those different resources. So we'll, We'll get there in a minute, but before before we go there, um, you've talked uh, often about the bigger challenge that is reflected in, in in winter. You were just talking about it just a, just a minute ago. Um, I I, I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that is driving the the, the winter problems. This is something I, I talk about a lot. It won't be a surprise to you. I'm bringing it up, but it is the sort of inefficiency that we have built into our system, particularly from resistance heat, from, from really inefficient heat, um, which according to the Department of Energy, we have resistance heat, which for those who don't know, and I've talked about this a lot and written about it a lot, but it's basically the technology of a toaster oven or a hairdryer, but sized for an entire home. We're still building homes in strip that have resistance heat, strip heating. It's called a lot of different things, baseboard, strip heating, resistance heating, but it is, it is very inefficient. It's in three and a half million homes in Texas. I just heard a presentation just last week, Will. It was at a, at a symposium at the University of Texas. Some researchers there were doing some, some looking back at URI. Of course, we don't know how much demand was during winter storm URI. Uh, ERCOT right. estimates it was 77 gigawatts. I had heard a, an estimate from Texas A&M that was published that said 82 gigawatts. This team of researchers at UT believes it was 87 gigawatts during URI, driven by extremely inefficient heat uh, in right. poorly insulated homes. You right. talked when you went to the, to the Senate for a hearing in the summer of 2021, you talked about the need to look at energy efficiency programs and the like. Yeah. We, we, have, we have done, there have been some increases in the energy efficiency programs to, the, to demand response. There, there's the VPP pilot. There's a lot of things to point to where progress has been made, but energy efficiency, as far as I can tell, and you may have a different view of things, we haven't made any progress on energy efficiency. The programs are still as they were three years ago. Why is that and when what needs to be done there? I, so, all right, one, one of the conditions, and everybody needs to know about this, um, in PURA, the Public Utility Regulatory Act, um, the conditions upon which the PUC can set energy efficiency standards are pretty restrictive uh, in terms of building a, um, 
an energy efficiency program that our regulated utilities manage. It's, it's very uh, stringent um, and prescriptive in the statute. Uh, this is one of the reasons, you know, when I first looked at this, you know, one of the, the virtues or features of being the first at the commission, you kind of get to pick what you work on first. And that's why I focused on uh, the, the VPP programs, because one, I saw the sense of urgency associated with it. And then two, I had more flexibility to do things uh, within the ERCOT market as a PUC commissioner than I could as a PUC commissioner related to energy efficiency. And that's because the statute was so restrictive about what we could do and how we could do it. And so I would recommend that the legislature does need to look at the energy efficiency uh, statutes, um, determine what actual powers the PUC has uh, to create uh, standards, what our targets for the standards are, where those costs to pay for those standards can be levied. Um, but ultimately, absolute, that is a midterm and long-term essential goal for the system because you have to smooth out the trajectory of demand growth and energy efficiency is that braking mechanism because it's a difference between climbing a hill and climbing the altitude like an F-35 fighter. You, you do not want that, that steep of a curve. You want to flatten out that curve to make our infrastructure planning processes uh, more achievable uh, and, and uh, orderly and to prevent cost shock within the wholesale market to the rest of the system. That's what you're trying to prevent, and that's what energy efficiency provides you. Um, we just didn't get to it over the last three years because, again, we were trying to, one, stabilize the ship, and then, two, guide it around several icebergs within this ice field um, and keep moving forward. Yeah, you guys obviously had a, a ton on your plate. I, I will point out the, the legislature... During the, the 2023 session, there was a bill that passed the Senate. It did not pass the House, but that would have called for, that would have required a 5x increase in energy efficiency. So huge credit to the Senate for getting that done. And hopefully next time uh, the House will push it through too. But there was a bill that did pass the House and the Senate, Senate Bill 1699. It was related to DERs. Right. And it had a provision right. in there on energy efficiency and demand response and I'm reading from it, the commission by rule shall establish goals in the ERCOT power region to reduce the average total residential load. So that is utilities code 39.919. So that's there that, and it does say shall. So hopefully um, your successors and and the current commission will will take that up during this year. Because I think that's right. I think that's a good analogy. The difference between a climb of a you know, what did you say of an F-35 or F-15 or whatever it is versus a yeah. nice gradual um, kind of a slope, energy efficiency can provide that. Yeah. yeah. So, and we, look, we saw yeah, that so, during, go ahead, go ahead. Well, so I, I have another recommendation on, on that front. One of the things that needs to be looked at is, look, the federal government just passed, a, uh, appropriated a lot of money in the Inflation Reduction Act. There is a lot of money out there for appliances that increase energy efficiency, that program is supposed to be administered by the State Energy Conservation Office. Okay, so they're supposed to find homes for this money to uh, help people purchase appliances to bring down their energy uh, costs and increases and manage their energy consumption. 
the PUC goal should be somewhat somehow tied to that effort because you establish a goal, but you have to figure out how to meet the goal. Well, that is at least an existing mechanism with resources that allow you to try to meet that goal. So there needs to be a synchronized effort on the part of the state. It's not just the PUC, and that's what I'm saying. Um, because we can be as much of a toothless tiger uh, as, as any other agency unless there's some type of um, way to operationalize to meet the goal. Yeah, a, a thousand percent. The, the, the funds that are coming to the state, it's $690 million over five years. There's two different programs, Homes and HERA, and those are designed for folks. So just so the, the public is aware, and I'll put some, some links in the show notes so people can find out about this. There are um, tax credits. They were, they, they, this was an existing statute, but it was very limited. It was like a $500 limit tax credit for energy efficiency. That's up to, and again, I'll put it in the show notes. So I'm, I'm not an accountant. You should go to your accountant for tax advice, but it's something like $3,000 a year. And it can be repeated year after year. So you can actually continue to get this. That is part of it. What the $690 million for is for the roughly 40 to 50% of the population that does not have a tax liability because those are tax credits. So if you don't have a liability, you can't get the credit. This money is supposed to help folks that don't have a tax liability. So that is coming to the state. The state will have a lot of discretion and leeway over how to focus those funds and if the state energy conservation office and the comptroller and the PUC all get together and focus this on HVAC and insulation, it could have a, not only a great impact for the people that use those funds and lower their energy bills, but also for everybody in the state to, to increase reliability, to decrease the probability of outages. And, and Doug, let me, let me pile on to that uh, to an extent that heat pumps, you brought up heat pumps. All right. The, the term heat pump terrifies me as a regulator, and I'll tell you why. Because we talk about strip heating. Um, I, I was talking with uh, Jim Robb, uh, with NERC, and uh, uh, Tepri, and 90% of the heat pumps that you will find in Home Depot or Lowe's are not variable cycle heat pumps. They are not the efficient heat pumps that we need to get in people's hands. They, they are heat pumps that are essentially strip heaters. The exact heating system that we want to try to avoid on the system is what is being marketed out there as, as, this, as a heat pump. But that's the type of load that will cause a, a reliability crisis. That's the type of load that will keep us in rotating outages for days on end. And that's what every system around the country is seeing is load growth, demand growth during winter months. And it's because people are buying the wrong kind of equipment at these stores and installing them. And that's the kind of stuff that that SECO program could help uh, assist with and get those appliances in the hands of lower income uh, folks who, who need to be using that to uh, normalize their consumption and reduce cost and help the system. But we have to have some type of coordinated strategy. And you've been preaching on that for a while but but we need it. Yeah, and that really I think is the role where the the energy efficiency programs that the PUC oversees through the utilities, the SECO yeah. programs that are that are coming from these federal funds, that's the role of of the incentive because I get asked this a lot. Why can't the market solve this? These are such great technologies. They save people so much money. Why can't the market take care of it? 
because when you have something break at your home, which I've had happen in a Texas right. summer, not a pleasant experience, you take what they have. Right. You take what they have, right? Because you you have to get the the so so this is the role of of incentives is to bridge that gap. So a consumer that is in trouble and needs that that solution quickly has actually the option. You make sure that the stores are carrying the higher efficiency stuff and you make right. sure that the the difference in the cost is negligible or even zero. So it's very easy for the customer, instead of putting in the very inefficient equipment that is going to make the grid reliability problems worse, you bridge that gap so that they're putting in the higher efficiency equipment that's going to increase our, our reliability. Um, so yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully there's a lot more to, to, to come on that. From, yeah, I think you're exactly right that the coordination between SECO and the comptroller's office and the PUC is going to be incredibly important in 2024. Uh, all right. So let's, let's shift gears just a little bit. Cause I, I definitely, you know, you mentioned, we, we started this conversation by you saying your, I believe it was your first job at the legislature was with Troy Frazier. Is that right? In the, in the Senate? Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, so you were kind of, uh, you know, you started off some of your formative experiences with with a guy who was a big uh, advocate for competitive markets, for the energy only market. Let let's talk about different. And, and you obviously over the last 14, 15 years, you will. I, I admire you so much. I think you are a person that has you you you. And I don't know if this comes from uh, military background or, or just your, your, your nature or whatever. I, I, have listened to you talk a lot when you're on the dais, you, you question your own assumptions. You're obviously somebody that tries to talk to a lot of different people, get a lot of different perspectives. You have looked at a lot of different markets. You've obviously been active in, in SPP at your time on the commission, but I, I've heard you talk, uh, eloquently about MISO and PJM. Even I've heard you bring up mm -hmm. Australia a bunch of different times, can you talk about markets and their evolution and where they're heading? We, we, we have an energy only market still mostly, though it's uh, a little bit in doubt if that's even what we actually have right now. What, what in your mind, I, I'm just going to, I could ask a question here, but I'm just going to just share your thoughts on markets and, and where you think, what, what do you think the evolution of them is? Where are they headed? Yeah. So I, uh, I had a role in uh, killing capacity in Texas in 2013. I was um, I helped organize a hearing uh, of the state senate that questioned capacity in Texas, and this was <clears throat> this was when we were really debating. Um, the commission was debating whether to just unilaterally move <clears throat> from an energy only market design to a capacity market, and um, and. In 2021, I was wondering, okay, did we really screw up? Did we not move quickly enough to capacity? Um, even though we, we have aspects of capacity in Texas, our, our uh, ancillary services uh, are capacity, uh, a form of it. Um, the methodology that we produce uh, for ancillary services determine forward capacity values um, in, in side markets. And so um, in my experience as a commissioner, when I got to see the other systems around the country and I work with uh, 
SPP, Southwest Power Pool. And to put in perspective, SPP, if you're looking for the most traditional power system in the world or in the country, that's Southwest Power Pool. That's made up of 16 vertically integrated <clears throat> utility monopolies that have all three tiers of the supply chain from the power production to the transmission and distribution delivery of the electrons to the uh, servicing of the actual consumers, you know, so the retail end of it. Those are vertically integrated monopolies. And so if there's any system that is regulated, fully regulated in the world that can manage through this energy transition, that's Southwest Power Pool. And then on the other extreme, you have ERCOT, which is completely deregulated. And, uh, and everybody keeps wondering if we're going to make this thing work. But over the last three years, two, two years, nine months, or eight months, so I, I looked at PJM, I looked at their capacity market, and capacity is excellent for retaining generation, okay? It is excellent for propping up previously installed plants. Now, the question is, will it pay to install anything new? The replacement values, because eventually any piece of machinery, any piece of metal is going to break off, shear off, rust, burst into flames, melt down. Um, it will go away. And the question is, is the capacity value enough to install something new? And, and in PJM, they did do it for uh, a finite amount of time, and that was after the shale revolution. The Marcellus shale is a captive shale play in the heart of PJM. Much of the energy value is predicated uh, in electricity is predicated upon the value of natural gas. And when you have captive natural gas that is going to be rock bottom cheap, you're going to get new power generation built over top of that. Oh, and they might get a side payment of a capacity payment. And that's what happened for the last 10 years. They built some new uh, uh some new power plants, but at the same time, they lost just as many power plants as they were building new. And at the same time, their load began to take off just like ERCOTs did. So they're experiencing load growth and they are not, they are not building enough new to support the load growth. So it's the same problem that every other system in the country is facing. So is capacity the answer? My view is it's not the whole answer. It may be a component, and that's why I had more of a nuanced view on the performance credit mechanism discussion uh, at the commission. I want to make it work, tried to make it work. Uh, SBP is talking about how to make it work as well right now. But it isn't an all-in, in my view, it wasn't an all-in capacity construct. It was another adder that would actually pay people to perform or pay them if they in fact did perform during system of high risk and system need. And it was, again, a market-driven approach to entice you to dispatch an electron, to take the risk and dispatch an electron into the system. Um, the jury is still out on what the best market design is. Um, and, and again, that's why I don't want to put it my eggs all in the basket of big power resources that are being installed at transmission. I want to get down closest, closer to the consumer because what I do know is that technology has vastly improved since the 1970s. The, the computational power of our country, of our world, has increased. The ability to co-optimize the system 
in, in a truly co-optimized sense to be able to dispatch the appropriate resource at the appropriate time on a millisecond basis is right at our fingertips. And that means that we can have more smaller resources working together rather than a big fleet of huge power plants across the state that basically incentivize overbuilding of the system, uh, inefficiently uh, committing capital uh, on long-term projects. I believe that's not the way we need to go. But um, I, I think I might get outvoted today, but I think I'll be proven right in the future. You said you want to make you wanted to make performance credit mechanism work. It's obviously it it, it had some you know famously some guardrails put on it by the legislature, namely a one billion dollar net cost cap. Um, I don't know. In your view, can it work? Or I mean, it's not it's not going to happen in the next couple of years. It would have to be after. RTC, right? Real-time co-optimization, which is, for those that aren't following this, a, a big system-wide upgrade to, to ERCOT that will solve by itself solve a lot of the problems. There's no one thing that's going to solve everything, but real-time co-optimization will solve a lot of the problems that are existing in the system now. But it's, I think it's got to wait that long. I don't know. Is, is PCM, could, could it actually work? I think it could work in concert with uh, the rest of the statutory framework that they put in. And I told the governor as such, uh, I said that even with the cost cap, the cost cap constrains the PCM. However, um, it working in concert with the ancillary services that, and I asked ERCOT point blank, if we had PCM tomorrow, would you still need the amount uh, or the the ancillary the suite of ancillary services that we're developing, and would you need a fairly robust procurement of ancillary services such as we have today? And they said yes. Yeah, right. And and the reason they need that is because they need enough behind the house uh, capability, behind the house resources, um, sitting on the sideline, ready to go when wind may drop off, or to cope through the solar ramp or to account for the single largest contingency, which we always have. Um, which, to, which is nuclear. Which is nuclear. Yeah, which is nuclear, by yeah. the way, right? And it's not it's not that there's anything wrong with nuclear. It just happens. And there's, there's a lot right with nuclear. It just happens to be the largest one on the system. So yeah. it's a lot of eggs in one basket. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so they need a big old suite of ancillary services to cope with that. So when people were talking about PCM can... Uh, can do all of this. Yeah, they, it's going to be doing all of this, plus you're going to be carrying the ancillary services. So a $1 billion cap essentially makes PCM live with the ancillaries, which it was going to have to anyway. Right, right. And so you need to co-optimize the system. Real-time co-optimization does that. It hopefully will produce a more realistic picture of how much ancillaries we need to carry on a day-to-day -day basis to cope for contingencies and variability of the resource mix. And then a PCM adder is going to be on top of that, uh, along with on top of an ORDC adder that gives you that value signal that you need to be there. You need to lay on that gas in advance. You need to deal with energy transfer or any other pipeline operator to have that gas contract. And you need to perform during that high-risk hour because we don't necessarily know when that's going to be. So we're going to do this on a settlement basis 
and you make sure that you're performed and you're going to get paid and you're going to do very well that year. Yeah. There's, we could, we could do a whole hour on PCM, but I will, I will, I uh, I'll, I'll restrain myself. Um, so, uh, I, I, I do, I do just want to ask you, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, but I think it's important to ask you this question. And, you know, in, in 2021, yeah, when you, when you were first appointed, you had an idea for dispatchable energy credits. I, I, I liked that idea at the time. And I, and I actually think that, PCM seems to be sort of morphing into something that sounded like dispatchable energy credits. Like the, the idea that, but, but to, but for that to work, doesn't it have to be technology neutral? Doesn't it have to be if, if you are, no, it does not. Okay. Go on. No, no, no. I I didn't say no. I said, Oh, uh, so that's true. It, it can, it can be either a deck is, um, proportioned, again, not to be the all-in capacity payment. So it can be targeted. But if you want it to not produce a competitive advantage uh, for any particular resource, because that's what it does, it it pumps money toward a subset of the market, which will skew. And I conceded this when I laid it out. This may have the effect of skewing bids into the, the dispatch engine, of, of the system. But I rationalize that, and I'll admit, look, I, I've worked in politics long enough, I can rationalize anything if I try hard enough, um, that we already have production tax credits that are skewing the bids of wind generation, and, and, soon to, and now solar generation, and frankly, now uh, batteries to some degree. Um, but my point is, we already have uh, some some skewing of, of the market because of subsidies. And so I figured, well, you might as well just subsidize the only, the one thing that isn't, doesn't have a direct subsidy from ERCOT. And I understand that there's arguments that gas is subsidized. And so I won't get into that. But um, if you wanted to, PCM is a deck ultimately with a $1 billion cap for uh, all resources that perform um, so th- that's essentially what it does. And I said that at the time, and I, I thought that was the irony of where Chairman Lake kind of went because the more it went toward um, establishing a clear uh, resource adequacy equilibrium point, um, the more it went toward allowing demand response uh, to, to be able to recover uh, PCMs, I'm like, man, this is starting to sound more like a deck every day. And, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to, to, to watch as this that concept of PCM continues to evolve and be discussed. I think the trick here is, and, and I think you, you kind of alluded to this when you're talking about ancillary services, we say energy only, it was probably a misnomer from the beginning. Of course, there is some amount of capacity that is procured. You can't have a system that doesn't have some of that. And the question, I talked about this a lot, um, folks, after yeah. Yuri, it's like it, it's not binary. This is not 100 or zero on, off, black, white. It's a, it's a dial. It's kind of a, you know, a dial that you're going to turn up or turn down. And the, I think the, the trick is to not turn the dial so far towards capacity that you lose that competitive market signal, that you do let stuff that needs to retire because it's not reliable and it's old and let it go. Right. Um, 
but also have enough of a signal that brings in resources that are available at the times of highest need. Um, Absolutely. So that's, that's the trick. It's, it's, it may be, it's, it may be easy to describe that problem. It's really hard to solve it. And that's, I think what everybody in the market's kind of dealing with right now. Yeah. I mean, it requires a certain amount of faith in markets and uh, Sam Newell um, really uh, got after me in the early days of our market design discussions because he accused me of not having faith in markets. And I think it was around the debt conversation. And, uh, and I'm like, Oh, Sam, let's not get religious about this, you know, but I do believe in markets and I believe they're the only way to solve uh, this and, and to help us transition. But, um, well, here, here, I, I have it at a high level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about this. Cause I'm not, I'm certainly not religious about this. Um, I believe that there are times, there are many things for which I think markets are not well suited. That that's my view of the world. I think for electricity, right. it happens to be really, really well suited. I think markets work quite well here. But but as with any market, you have to have the signal for the for the things that you need, and the, that's the question right now: is the signal getting through? Well, especially with the degree of sophisticated technology that we have in the energy space. Yeah. Since 1974, the world has been focused on one thing, and that has been solving for uh, a sustainable supply of energy <laughs> to meet our needs, and. Uh, we have the capabilities. We have to allow a market to dictate where those capabilities are deployed and employed. And um, that's why deregulation happened in the late 90s. And it didn't just happen in Texas. It happened everywhere. And now everybody wants to try to talk about, okay, well, how would we put the toothpaste inside of the bottle? I don't know how you'd do it. You can't. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could, but it would be enormously expensive and it wouldn't get to the outcomes I think anybody's looking for. I think one, one of the key things for, that markets have going forward is if, if, you, if you do the flip side and you say, okay, what, what else are we going to do? We're going to completely regulate. It's going to be command and control. Uh, humans right. with all their you know, problems are going to decide this is what should happen. There's too much dynamism out there right now, right? There's too much happening. Technology exactly. is moving faster than humans can keep up with. So that's why you want markets to, to be able to kind of skate to where that puck is going, if you will, right? Um, I don't but, think well, and an even scarier thought is like, okay, let's allow AI to do this. Let's, let's uh, turn it over to artificial intelligence. What, one of my points in coming on here is, uh, so Winter Storm Elliot blew through the country last Christmas, not this last Christmas, Christmas before last. And Tennessee Valley Authority went into load shed for the first time in 60 years. And they did so because uh, of a number of things, but chief among them was they missed their load forecast. And so did PJM, and so did ERCOT, and so did SPP, and so did every other system in the country that was affected by that storm. And they missed their load forecast from anywhere from by a magnitude of 10% to 30 to 35%. Yep. Okay. There were huge misses all over the country. That's the kind of data that will be inputted into artificial intelligence if they were running the vertically integrated monolith of the electric grid of the future. Okay. So AI is only as good as the data being inputted into it. And we're really bad at load forecasting. Yeah. And, um, so I recommend allowing the markets to gauge where we're at right now 
Because like I said, you're picking your way through an ice field and that iceberg is really big. That's just below the surface. So you better be careful. And whatever kind of capacity market you have, you have to be able to do that. That load forecasting piece is, is huge. And yeah, it's critical. Right. And, and the ability for folks to get that right seems to your point to not be very great. That, that was, it is, this is another thing I talk about a lot. That was a recommendation out of the FERC and NERC report was that the balancing authorities like, you know, for example, ERCOT need to get better at forecasting demand. That miss in ERCOT was 23%. So you've mentioned that range of 10 to 30. It was on the higher end of that range in ERCOT. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, in the coming weeks. We're recording on uh, January the, the 9th, but in the, you know, in the next week or two as this cold front moves through, I think that those demand forecast misses are happening because of resistance heat. They still don't understand. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, one other question, um, a little bit of a, a, a pivot here, but I wanted to ask you about this too. Um, I was going back in preparation for this interview and looking back on, obviously, as I've quoted you a few times, looking back on that on that first year as you were sort of um, getting adjusted to the commission and in this sort of post-Yuri reality. Um, you said in, in November 2021, you were referring to the, the conference of parties, the climate conference that, that, that was meeting at that time, that there were going to be trillions of dollars of global capital deployed. And you said Texas will be a great destination for, for that capital. At the time, um, you, you said we might see, this, was, this is really amazing, November 2021, you said we might see 20 to 30 gigawatts of solar eventually. Two years later, we've already crossed about 22 gigawatts, according to the number of right. just a couple of days ago. So will you talk a little bit about Texas and what the opportunity in whatever this thing that's happening right now, some call it an energy transition, some call it an energy expansion. There's, there's lots of different words that can go on, but something is happening. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of global capital right now going into, speaking of of markets and market dynamism, a lot going into, um, quote unquote, clean energy. Do you, in your opinion, mm -hmm. is Texas still set up or is it better or worse than a couple of years ago? What's the trend line? Is Texas a destination for, for that kind of economic growth? Texas, Texas, just like my ADER pilot program, is the best sandbox on the planet to test whether this, this energy transition is going to work for the betterment of our people or not. And that's a, a great question right now. Um, that's a historic question. And, but as a result, we will have capital deployed uh, on both the load side and the resource side. And so at the same time, we saw 20 gigawatts of solar um, deployed in the system or certainly another 11, and then we'll have 20 by the end of, or probably going into next summer. So that total of 30. Um, we've doubled our battery capacity. We will double it again um, very soon. And uh, batteries are right at home and what's going on right now. And it's going to be, a, it has been an invaluable resource and will be a critical resource managing through the seasons uh, that we're soon to see. Uh, with the amount of load growth patterns that we have today. And so um, every energy company in the world is either looking at Texas or has invested capital in, capital in Texas to some degree 
And it's all in how we co-optimize the system. I'm not talking about real-time co-optimization. I'm talking about how the market co-optimizes the system. And, um, and we're, we're proving out a lot of lessons that everybody else is learning from. This PCM concept is being uh, analyzed in SPP. Um, it's being looked at by other systems, but it's, again, more in the deck fashion than the, the forward long-term LSCRO or forward capacity market fashion. And so we're, we're cracking the code on some innovative stuff. We've done it on weatherization. We're going to do it on, uh, on other approaches. Um, now, ERCOT staff may be uncomfortable with that from time to time. PUC staff may be uncomfortable with that from time to time. Because again, that's, it's a matter of faith. You're letting other people sort of control uh, what happens to you. And, and that's an uncomfortable situation. But that's the only way we're going to make it through this. And uh, the market will solve for it. It is it is uncomfortable, and I but I think that the alternative again will get much more uncomfortable for Texans because otherwise it's an illusion of control, right? You, I, I'm all for focusing on what you can control in life. I named my company Stoic Energy. I, I I love the Stoics and like focus on what you could control, but you have to be clear eyed about what you can actually control. And as a government right. agency, it's really hard to steer billions of dollars in global capital. They're you know, <laughs> Efficiently. Yeah, yeah. absolutely not. I mean, and, and then you create a crony capitalist apparatus that will produce undesirable outcomes. Matter of fact, you will bumble in to the outcome that you most wanted to avoid. Exactly. Uh, and it'll happen to you sooner uh, than it otherwise would have. And that's what we've got to avoid with our policymaking right now. Yeah, it's got to be like shaping, guiding, steering, not commanding and controlling. Right. Um, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I want to just end with these couple questions I sent you in advance to, to think about. None of those other questions I sent you in advance, but I, a couple of these I did because I, I wanted to, to, to get your thoughts on these. Let's, let's start with this one. What are the two to three energy policies you think would have the biggest impact to increase reliability, lower costs, and or reduce pollution? Well, this will be fast. I covered uh, a couple of these in our exchanges, but one, allow uh, broad-based and large-scale bidding of virtual power plants into the current suite of ancillary services, especially ECRF, since it is so uh, well-suited for that uh, specific service, um, and, and allow them to carry a, a larger percentage of, of what, as I said, is being kept behind the house, okay? Those, those electrons that we know are there that can be dispatched, but eventually... What I hope to see and what that policy would allow is an a overbuilding and scaling of the amount of EPPs that are out there that eventually will start to uh, engage with our energy markets. And if they engage with our ener energy markets, then the ancillaries will not nearly be as necessary. And, hope, and that will accomplish greater reliability. And as a secondary approach, it'll accomplish greater resiliency. And it'll ultimately bring down wholesale costs. And I would point out that it would behave very similarly for the system, just like wind did. Okay, when we went from two gigawatts of wind at the beginning of the last decade to five gigawatts of wind to now we have 35 gigawatts of wind. And like I said, 
for 90% of the hours of the year, that keeps prices rock bottom. If you have enough virtual power plants out there that are engaging with the system, it would reduce costs for the rest of the system. It would make our manufacturers and industry industrials that much more competitive on a global scale, causing business continue to grow in Texas. So I think that's we're at first base of a long run around uh, the field, and and that's something that could be done immediately. Second. Again, I think we should consider socializing distribution costs throughout the system. Again, normalizing the standard between transmission cost allocation and distribution cost allocation because the technology has evolved to a point to where it provides the same benefits, the resources, the capabilities at distribution, especially after uh, transportation electrification does continue to materialize on the system, the capabilities of distribution will support the entire system, not just the Houston area and not just the city of Austin. Uh, and in that way, the system, the entire system can lean on itself and not, and not compartmentalize the costs uh, along the consumer classes of our, our least fortunate. And so I, I think that should be taken up in the next three years. But um, and ultimately, the industrials who will pay more of the costs associated with that normalization of allocation will experience the benefit and continue to grow for the reasons I said in regards to virtual power plants. It's, it's a fairness issue. Yep. Yeah. That's a huge one. Those are both huge ones. Um, what? So I think you've talked about this a lot, so you don't need to go deep on this one because I think most of the conversation is kind of focused on this, but what will the grid look like in 10 years and how is it different for consumers? A, a, lot, of, a lot of EPPs, a lot of participation, a lot of chance to, to earn um, all that. Is there anything else you want to say about that particular question? Yeah, no, it, it, there's a lot more chance for them to engage and I think they will have every reason to engage because, because in the near term, costs will go up. Um, they will go up just like they did when deregulation happened. Costs went up yep. uh, because you had to pay for stranded costs. You had to normalize the, the way the market was behaving within itself. Um, but ultimately, I think uh, what, what the systems start to look like over the next 10 and 20 years is, again, I think the grid planners start behaving more of an, on an islanded basis. Uh, islands connected by large-scale uh, infrastructure like CREZ, um, large-scale transmission uh, highways carrying power from more remote uh, regions where renewables are plentiful to the load centers, to the Port of Houston, uh, industrial-heavy areas like that. But ultimately, those, those regions closest to the loads would be self-supported through a more disparate and aggregated system of smaller resources like small modular reactors or uh, VPPs or uh, DGRs, distributed generation resources, or SODG, standalone distributed generation resources. And so it, it's a more co-optimized system, but it's more islanded for grid planning purposes. And that's the way everybody sort of will start building themselves back out. And, and ultimately, we get to a point where we can start inter, uh, interconnecting those zones, just like we did at the, you know, in the last century, but it's going to take a while to get there. Yeah, it's a it's a really compelling vision for the future of the grid. I think if it's all right with you, we'll we'll leave it there. Will McAdams, thank you very much for being on the Energy Capital Podcast. 
Thank you for listening to the Energy Capital Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, have a great day.